welcome to the seventh podcast in the UNSW Canberra series, Navigating Uncertainty, on the topic of a coal elimination treaty. In such tumultuous and unpredictable times, we believe that careful work in the humanities and social sciences can shed light on many of our current challenges and help us to chart ways forward. Today's podcast is sponsored by the Environment and Governance Research Group based at UNSW Canberra and the UNSW Grand Challenge on Thriving in the Anthropocene. This podcast has been recorded on the lands of the Ngunnawal people, the traditional custodians of the Canberra region. I acknowledge the traditional owners of the land wherever you are listening to this podcast. In this podcast, we look at the great dangers of coal and why the Paris Agreement seems likely to fail, whether it would be possible to eliminate coal globally, and if so, how best to go about it. I am Shirley Scott, and it is my pleasure to host today's conversation. Our guest today is Anthony Burke, who is a Professor of Environmental Politics and International Relations at UNSW Canberra. This year, Tony, you and co-author Stephanie Fischel published a paper in the journal Earth Systems Governance in which you outlined a proposal for a coal elimination treaty. This would be a global agreement, legally binding, providing for the elimination of coal's production, sale and burning by 2030. Could you start by please explaining what's the problem with coal? Thank you, Shelley. There are a number of problems with coal, but if you just wanted one, it's about its contribution to climate change. It's responsible for 80% of historical emissions since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, and it's responsible for 40% of global emissions now. And it's also the most emissions-intensive of any fuel that's burned currently, which means that it produces more CO2 per weight than any other substance like oil or gas. Even more concerning is that the existing and planned investment in coal over the next few decades has been calculated to add up to nearly 317% of the Paris Agreement budget to stay within 1.5 degrees. So based on its contribution to climate change, this is an overwhelming argument for addressing coal and addressing coal early, which is why we've come up with our coal elimination treaty proposal. Then you can add a number of other consequences as well. It, it just has a major impact on global public health through its pollution. It's a very toxic substance. It produces airborne pollutants of particulate matter, sulfur dioxide, oxides of nitrogen, carbon dioxide, mercury, arsenic, chromium, nickel, and other heavy metals. It's coal ash, it's flash, it has uranium and thorium uh, contained within it and is a major pollution problem for communities around coal mines. It's caused acid rain and its health effects on humans include neurological damage, respiratory disease and cancer and then you have the broader impact on global heat, global heating and biodiversity loss through climate change. Boston Health Effects Institute in 2016 published a study that ex estimated that 4 million deaths are caused annually from the, the ambient air pollution caused by coal and other fossil fuels. Another 2.6 million deaths annually from the household burning of solid fuels, where coal is a major component. The 
The other concern that we have with coal is around its mining. And here there are really important questions of justice. In many places you often see coal mines removing entire mountains, entire villages, entire towns. There's a remarkable film called Anthropocene where there is this footage of a town being demolished in Germany to make way for the expansion of a coal mine. And in countries like India and Colombia, you have big mines that are causing major injustice problems. So in 2011, there was a big block of India's very biodiverse Hasdeo around forest in the Chattagars province, which was destroyed for coal mining. That continued despite court challenges from the community. And now, against even increased and widespread community opposition, the Modi government is pushing an auction of 40 more blocks of the forest for new private sector mines. That's going to displace 6,000 people and five villages and destroy thousands of hectares of irreplaceable forest habitat. In Colombia, you've got the enormous Cerrojón coal mine, which is owned by BHP, Glencore and Anglo-American. And that's seen ongoing conflict with the Wayo indigenous landowners. And it's also been a vector for the introduction of COVID-19. So if coal is as bad as you say, why do you think a treaty's the best way to go about stopping all mining and use of coal? Don't you think treaties are mere scraps of paper that don't make much difference in the world? Yeah, this is a, an interesting point of view coming from, from an international lawyer. But as someone who I know is interested in the way power works in international law, it's also a very good question. So we need to think about what treaties can actually do and what they can't do. So what they can do is stimulate cooperation and action. They can help cut through collective action problems where states may not want to move on an issue absent an agreement. And I think most importantly, they can lay down new norms and rules, even if they're not fully followed, that they are important. And if there is enough state practice attached to what follows, treaties can become international customary law binding on the world. So treaties do matter. I think you could argue that power structures the way international law works, but international law can also change the structure of power. And that's, in a way, what we're hoping for with this proposal. Let's look at the context as well, the political context here, is that there is a major conflict globally around coal. There are numerous civil society campaigns against coal mining, the burning of coal. You have groups, groups of countries and cities like the Powering Past Coal Alliance, which is aiming to move beyond coal by about 2038. But you also have enormous pushback from the coal industry, which has aligned itself politically with the far right in many countries, is engaged in a lot of vexation, vexatious litigation against critics. So there is a, a serious conflict here, and I think it's a conflict in which climate and justice advocates are currently losing. The industry is in decline, but this will not happen fast enough to save the Earth's climate. And I think the recent International Energy Agency report, which suggests the 
the industry will be in serious decline by the 2040s shows that this is not going to happen fast enough. And whilst there are numerous campaigns around the world against particular mines or divestment, they're somewhat disjointed and they lack a global dimension. Some states we know are keen to phase out coal, but others are determined to subsidise the industry with taxpayer money forever. So we think that a coal elimination treaty, the CET, could provide that global dimension, while also perhaps bringing some responsibility into the process. It can share best practice on just transition and also help manage the market effects of a phase-out as well. And here I think the key power of it will be to lay down a, a powerful new global norm against not just coal but f- all fossil fuels, and then we hope the practical cooperation dimension comes into play. And that's where it could perhaps change the structure of power that's at work in this area. Thanks, Tony. Well, what about the Paris Agreement then? If coal is so bad largely because of its contribution to climate change, then we're all aware that the Paris Agreement on Climate Change was signed in 2015 and was a great achievement. Its success was in part due to its voluntary approach, where each government offered a nationally determined contribution, NDC, to reducing emissions, and peer pressure will ensure that they will be strengthened in future years so that global heating can be held well below 2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. If we have Paris, which has entered into force, has global membership and 189 ratifications, why isn't that enough? This is a really good question because the Paris Agreement is genuinely worthwhile and it is important and we need to make every effort, whether we're citizens or working in government, to to get this to work. But I have genuine fears that it may fail. The, The short answer to this is that Paris's voluntary commitment system presents both opportunities and very serious risks. And this voluntary commitment system has many people seriously worried that it won't deliver the global emissions reductions to stay below 1.5 quickly enough. So the key thing about Paris is that you have this balance of risk and opportunity. The opportunity lies in the fact that the voluntary system brought us the Paris Agreement in the first place because otherwise you wouldn't have been able to get all the big countries to the table. But it also creates the risk that the voluntary system, which doesn't have a lot of accountability and enforcement attached to it, won't deliver in time. So if Paris delivers, the voluntary approach will be a stroke of genius. But if if it doesn't, which many people fear, it could be more of a disaster. The value of Paris, I think, lies what can be seen in two key articles. Article 2 argues that the the agreement aims to hold the increase in the global average temperature to well below 2 degrees above pre-industrial levels, and then pursuing efforts to limit the temperature increase to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. And then Article 2 adds more context to this by arguing that the agreement aims to achieve a balance between anthropogenic emissions by sources and removals by sinks 
of greenhouse gases in the second half of the century. And between them, those two articles give you a kind of global heating goal of well below two degrees or 1.5, but also a balance, what we'd call net zero global greenhouse emissions um, between emissions and sinks in the second half of this century. And we know that the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change in its 1.5 degrees Celsius report argued that we really need to get to net zero around 2050. And we need a caveat there as well because some respected climate scientists like Will Steffen at the ANU are actually arguing because that doesn't in incorporate feedbacks like the potential for massive levels of ice loss and you know, less reflection of sunlight, um, methane emissions from permafrost melting and so on, that we may well need to reduce the carbon budget and get to net zero by the early 2040s. And the carbon budget situation is really very concerning and this is what makes Paris such a fraught question. Depending on the modelling you use, and you can look at this on, on the Carbon Brief website, we have between zero and eight years of current emissions before we blow through 1.5 degrees and are heading towards two degrees. And these scientists like Will Stephan are arguing that if we start heading towards two degrees, the danger is because of these planetary feedbacks that will will enter a, an uncontrollable warming scenario, which they've called a hothouse earth scenario. So Paris really is an interesting question because it says, or the UNFCCC argues, we're trying to pre prevent dangerous anthropogenic interference with the earth system and the climate system. I think after the fires this year in Australia and in California, we know that danger is upon us. So really what we're trying to do is prevent catastrophic warming. Can Paris do this? Well, the signs are very mixed. China, for example, is responsible for nearly 30% of global emissions now, announced very recently that it would plateau its emissions in 2030. Keep in mind the IPCC says we need to cut them by 45% by 2030, and that it will aim to be carbon neutral so that it will balance its CO2 emissions by 2060, not 2050, and not including agriculture and land use and other non-CO2 gases. The European Commission has recommended to the EU that it cut its emissions 55% by 2030, but that has still not adopted EU policy. Uh, we know the US is withdrawing from Paris, and it, along with Russia, India and Japan, won't increase their Paris pledges. So you have a situation there where over half the world's emissions, you know, the countries responsible for those are not being more ambitious on emissions reduction. So we'll really know where Paris is by COP26, the meeting next year in Glasgow, We'll know that Paris is a, a really neat, um, inspired idea that works or, 
or maybe its member states will turn it into a kind of cynical global mechanism of climate delay. Have you done much detailed planning or drafting of what a coal elimination treaty might say? What might be its key provisions? We haven't gone into this in a lot of detail, but I have thought about some of those key provisions and I'd I'd say you'd, you'd need about four or five, which then, then can be fleshed out in more detail. The first one is you'd need a, a normative statement there about the dangers and the risks of coal from a climatic and a public health standpoint and the contribution that acting on it can make to realising the goals of the Paris Agreement. You would need key provisions that just simply prohibit mining and burning of coal by a clear date or dates. Now, we haven't, we don't hold the view that we should stagger the elimination of coal between regions and countries. But you might need, and the reason for that is that the argument is that we need to move first on coal because it's the largest single source of emissions. It's a very simple sector to address and you need to buy time for the world to address other more complex challenges like concrete, like transport, like farming, like air travel. So everyone should be aiming to meet this elimination goal by the early 2030s together. So that raises complex issues about whether you're honouring the justice concerns of the Paris Agreement about, around common and differentiated responsibility. The way we thought about this is to perhaps to put provisions in there to allow for later entrance if countries don't want to join it initially. As long as their, their entry and their emissions reduction path from coal is consistent with a 1.5 degree global warming pathway. You might allow allowances for particular uses of coal. Um, we're thinking here of particularly steel, where you could allow a later, a later phase-out date for coke and coal, for example. But we're also noting that there is exciting new technology being trialled in Sweden, for example, where hydrogen is, is being used as a fuel for the furnaces in steelworks. So if that happened more quickly, you may not need that. You'd need provisions around just transition, and we have talked about a fossil fuels transition fund that could be raised on taxes on fossil fuel trade and, and import. And those funds could be given to developing countries to, to help them transition out of coal and support coal-dependent communities. And there may be principles and cooperative frameworks that you want to establish there and they could be put in the agreement. For example, we know that Paris has language about just transition and I think that can be built on. One particularly curly question that we've come across recently um, by reading a paper from the International Institute for Environment and Development, is about investor-state dispute settlement provisions and trade agreements, where they think there's a risk that 
companies who own fossil fuel infrastructure and and so on would sue countries who want to force them to phase out their businesses more quickly than they would otherwise. Now, they're arguing that, and they mention our proposal, they're arguing that states who want to take action under the treaty, you could include a provision there that exempts those treaties from investor-state dispute settlement provisions to avoid uh, expensive and unfair litigation. Finally, you'd need some verification and accountability provisions. And that's interesting too because we know that global environmental law is soft law and there's no higher enforcement body of any kind, whereas we know that, say, in the international security and arms control sphere, you have the UN Security Council. In your article, you look at three alternative pathways by which to bring such a treaty into reality. One of these is as a protocol to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. Others are under the auspices of the WHO. Another, I think, is as a standalone treaty, a process towards which could be established by the UN General Assembly. Having assessed the feasibility of various options, what do you consider to be the most viable pathway internationally by which a CET could be negotiated and adopted. Apropos our earlier discussion about the Paris Agreement, the natural home of this agreement should be the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. But the problem there is the voting rules of the, the organisation, which were never agreed, so consensus is what is needed, and that gives one state the potential opportunity to block any kind of agreement. And given that we know a number of states would be quite hostile to such an agreement, that's not going to be a viable pathway in the time frame that we need, 2030 or early 2030s. The other model is the World Health Assembly of the WHO. Now, we know that this body uh, negotiated and agreed an international framework convention on tobacco control. And given the enormous public health impacts of coal, it, it is a really good fit. You need a, a two-thirds majority to have an agreement adopted, which is a good, a good threshold. It, it shows that you don't need necessarily unanimous global support, but you need a strong, a strong consensus around it. Now, the only concern there is obviously the COVID-19 crisis, and perhaps that is going to take up the WHO's energy. It's you know, a kind of conflictual, controversial space diplomatically as well. So we may need to think of another. And here's where we thought about the UN General Assembly. Following the experience of the, the negotiation of the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons on the Nuclear Ban Treaty, now, they moved outside the framework of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty and the Conference on Disarmament, which were not producing the kind of progress on disarmament that many member states wanted. So they used the General Assembly to create working groups initially to discuss various proposals to deal with disarmament, and then they created a conference to negotiate a full treaty. And then you got a 
pretty much the two-thirds vote uh, to adopt that treaty in 2017. So you, you have a situation where it is much easier to establish the conference in, through the General Assembly, but you still need a strong consensus threshold for adoption. I also think that any coal illumination treaty agreement would need to make sure it's compatible with the underlying goals of the Framework Convention on Climate Change and, and the Paris Agreement. And here I can see that it can make a direct contribution because any actions taken under the coal treaty will help countries strengthen their nationally determined contributions and deliver faster action towards the Paris goals. A key question that arises with climate action is justice. In the coal context, it seems to break into two, whether it is just to expect developing countries to phase it out at the same time as the developed north and the livelihoods of communities dependent on coal mines and power plants. How does your proposal address these questions? Yeah, a really, another really important question here, and one of them is that I think there's politics question built into it, but two kinds of justice questions. And let me address the, the second one first. Just transition, the future of coal-dependent communities and workers in the coal industry is really important. These workers have given their lives to this, to this industry. They've, they've exposed themselves to toxic pollution and substances, their health has been undermined, and they've helped, in a sense, drive the Industrial Revolution. And I think they're rightly proud of their contribution, but we also know that the coal industry is in decline because of the, the growth in renewable energy, so it's losing market share, and this is producing sudden sackings. We just had it quite recently in Australia at the Wombo plant, where People have just been given a few weeks' notice and a small redundancy package, and, and that's it. I think any, any transition process like this needs to be just. And that involves industry diversification, which government should lead, but it's a process in which there needs to be cooperation and dialogue. So unions need to be involved, the businesses need to be involved, the business community who can drive diversification can be involved. Um, that needs to be sustainable. And you need unions and communities and workers involved in that dialogue process as well. So our thinking is that ideally you don't force closures, you agree them. And you agree them on a timetable with alternative options and support for people to retrain and find quality new employment. and regions for have sustainable new industries to go along with. And this is something that the coal agreement could help encourage a culture of cooperation and sharing of best practice around how to go about this. The other justice question that comes up here is an argument that coal-led development is important to have continue because this is a solution to energy poverty in the developing world. Now, 
we've worked out that this is really a talking point that has come out of the coal industry. And there have been a number of studies, one in particular by the Overseas Development Institute, that argue that this is a somewhat false argument because it's uneconomic to build a transmission infrastructure out to often remote rural communities in the developing world. And it is, you have better justice outcomes and lower costs if you can just locate renewable energy, particularly wind and solar, in communities, in people's villages. And microgrid solar with batteries is a particularly good option there. The other point about this argument is that how can you, it's kind of absurd to say that you can address energy poverty as a justice question at the same time as you're burning this toxic substance that kills hundreds of thousands of people in China and India every year. Finally, the justice issue here is around arguments that the Global South needs more time to phase out fossil fuels for development. Now, economically, that doesn't stand up anymore. But there's also serious divisions within the Global South where climate-vulnerable states, like those in the North and South Pacific, in East Africa, in the Caribbean, want binding targets. They wanted a 1.5-degree goal in the Paris Agreement. And their interests, their justice interests, lie in faster climate action. And you've just got to look at the Boy Declaration on Regional Security that the South Pacific Forum put out, which said, climate change is our most serious threat and we want faster action. This has all been really interesting and I'm imagining that some of our listeners might now want to read more of the detail of what you're proposing. How might they be able to access your articles? The full article where we developed this proposal is in Earth System Governance and that's the journal and it's open access so that can be found just by Googling it. Also the Planet Politics Institute has created a number of pages with information about the treaty plus pages featuring much of the supporting research so there are probably some good teaching resources and campaigning resources there as well. Well, thank you, Anthony, for joining us for such a fascinating discussion, and a thanks to our audience for your interest today. This was the seventh in UNSW's Navigating Uncertainty podcast series. Please join us again when we explore the topic of cybersecurity and future warfare.